and welcome to this month's edition of DTALK, the International Diabetes Federation's podcast series, providing topical insights on issues of interest to the global diabetes community. I'm your host, Felissa DeRose, and this month we're going to talk about the links between obesity and type 2 diabetes and the need for a joint approach to tackle the two pandemics which affect hundreds of millions of people worldwide. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, pediatrician and childhood obesity researcher at the University of Sydney, Professor Louise Barr, and clinical senior research fellow at the University of Glasgow, Professor Mike Lean. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? We're fine, all well. <laughs> Well, thank you so much and welcome to DTALK. I'd like to first start off um, by saying that in March, the International Diabetes Federation and the World Obesity Federation launched a joint policy brief called Obesity and Type 2 Diabetes, a joint approach to halt the rise. It includes information about the risk factors behind both conditions and proposes a series of policy recommendations to tackle them. Mike, why do you think it's important that IDF and WOF have developed this document? I think this is a, a sort of signal moment in our development in the profession and in our understanding of, of this disease. Diabetes is massive. It's absorbing up to 20% of entire national health service budgets or health service budgets in Europe. This is a huge debilitating disease which shortens lives painfully with disability. And we've begun to realize that it's not a, a, an endocrine disease, standalone endocrine disease. It's not the little brother of type 1 diabetes, but type 2 diabetes is in fact part of the entire disease process of obesity. So. People gain weight for all the reasons that people gain weight, mainly in adulthood, some in childhood as well, unfortunately. And if they're genetically predisposed, they are individuals, perhaps 30% of all people, 40% in some areas, will go on to develop diabetes in time. So it requires time and weight gain. Without the weight gain, we just don't see type 2 diabetes. So if you wind the clock back, maybe two generations, type 2 mm -hmm. diabetes is quite a rare disease. And the difference, the big, big, huge numbers we're seeing now are entirely to do with increasing overweight and obesity. And by obesity, we don't mean a body mass index of 30 or 28 or any number. It's that disease process whereby people start to gather body fat, excessive body fat, and some people put it into the wrong places, the ectopic sites, the liver, the pancreas, the heart, and these organs then start to fail. And that's the root cause of this disease. So it really is the same disease process of excess fat gain, um, which unfortunately many individuals will then suffer from because they are genetically predisposed to diabetes and indeed to uh, other non-communicable diseases. Oh, thank you so much for that clarification, because as a person just going to my doctor, they're all about BMI, BMI. And so Hearing that it's more in depth is very insightful. Thank you, Mike. And Louise, can you talk about the importance of the document? Um, I think it's incredibly important, as Mike said, to realize that there is this linkage between obesity and type two diabetes. Um, I think it's for too long, type two diabetes has been treated as if 
the BMI or the weight is somehow of really secondary importance and there's been a real focus on other management. It's really important that those other issues get managed, but if you forget about or neglect to manage the the obesity, then you're actually running into all sorts of problems. You're making it far more difficult. I want to also um, highlight that we've also seen this start to develop through childhood and adolescence as well. Um, and we have more young people entering adulthood already with significant risk factors for the development of type 2 diabetes, and indeed some already with established type 2 diabetes. When I was a junior doctor in the 1980s, um, we never saw type 2 diabetes. That was something that only occurred in adults. And now, uh, certainly in my country of Australia, if you look at um, uh, teenagers, well over 10% of young people with, type, with diabetes have type 2 diabetes, and that number is increasing. And, of course, in some countries that's a much higher proportion still, and there are higher risk groups. This is tremendous change in just a few decades. Um. Okay, so we often talk about nutrition and physical activity aspects of obesity and type 2 diabetes prevention. But it was interesting to read in the briefing the other factors, such as sleep, genetics, healthcare access, and how they can all contribute to it. Can you say a bit more about these other factors besides physical activity and nutrition? Um, let's start with you, Mike. Okay, yes, and, and I think it is interesting that there are a number of these factors, and you, you mentioned some, which are contributing to the reason why some people get diabetes and some people don't. And it's really important to recognize not everybody who gets overweight but can, gathers excess fat will develop diabetes. We know quite a lot about the reasons why some do and some don't. The main one is, of course, family history and genetics. And, and if your parents have type 2 diabetes and you gain weight, you are very likely to also suffer the same disease. The other element is age. And of course, that, that's much more complicated. And it used to be, and Louise mentioned, you never used to see it in childhood. We scarcely ever saw it in adulthood before the, the age of 60 or 70. When I was a very junior doctor, it was really a disease of old people. Now we're seeing commonly in the 40s and 50s, in the 30s, in the 20s. And these are the younger people who are suffering far more complications, they're losing up to 15 years of life if you develop type 2 diabetes in your 20s or 30s. And we don't yet know about the childhood side of it. Um, what are the other factors and how are they playing into that equation is still a little bit unknown. Um, things like sleep are interesting because it's possible that sleep is having some subtle effect on our um, metabolism. It's also possible that people who don't sleep enough or sleep short times are actually spending more time in the kitchen or more time in a restaurant or more time eating somewhere else. Um, people who are more physically active tend to sleep better. Perhaps that's part of the story. So these are kind of part of a story rather than being major factors on their own. I think it's important not to get these other factors out of perspective. So yes, people who have poorer sleep tend to have more diabetes. It's not a very major factor. It's part of the story. It's a difficult one to correct unless you can do it by um, being less overweight, which makes people sleep better, or by more, more physical activity. We know that people who have more fruit and vegetables in their diets are less likely to have type 2 diabetes. Is that good things about fruit and vegetables? Possibly, probably. 
uh, or is it because they tend to have less of the other things which are more calorie rich uh, and aggravating the system? We also know that smokers are about 30 or 40 percent more likely to develop type 2 diabetes. And this points to one of the other factors here, which is a um, probably an inflammatory mechanism. So when mm. people gain weight, their inflammatory activity in the body increases. If people are inactive, there's greater inflammatory activity. If people smoke, there's greater inflammatory activity. So you've got a combination between the calories accumulating and a pro-inflammatory basis for the disease. But I think it's really important when looking at all the other factors not to get them out of perspective. The big, big, big overwhelming factor is gaining weight um, both in childhood and in adulthood. Oh, wow. Thank you. Louise? Um, I would agree with Mike, how, how unusual. Um, I agree. There's this, this clustering of healthy lifestyle um, factors that are actually really helpful for a whole lot of things. It's not just for not developing type 2 diabetes. They're also good for avoiding heart disease. They're good for good bone health, good um, dental health, um, heart health, um, you name it. Um, and there's a good reason why they're, you know, parts of normal health promotion programs in so many countries is because it is good to eat um, fruit and vegetables, to avoid um, discretion, those discretionary junk foods. It is good to be physically active. It is good to get good sleep. It is good to avoid too much alcohol and to avoid smoking. There's a whole lot of other health benefits that come from these. But we do know that some of these are really important in um, avoid, um, helping avoid the development of excess body fat gain and also mm -hmm. to avoid type 2 diabetes. doesn't mean you will completely, you know, even if um, it doesn't mean you will absolutely be guaranteed not to develop type 2 diabetes, but it does mean that your risk will decrease. Um, and even just being able to make some changes. So if you are a smoker, bringing your smoking down, um, if you are someone who's relatively inactive, being able to go for some more walk, you know, more walking during the during the week, um, being able to try to get, and this is particularly an issue perhaps particularly for adolescents, trying to get into a more usual sleep-wake routine can be health, helpful for on lots of lots of levels. It was interesting during the COVID-19 lockdowns that many countries experienced, um, we did see a rise in the prevalence of um, overweight and obesity in some communities. Um, and I'm certainly aware of that, that those data for children and young people across North America, Europe and China. And we've got other evidence suggesting that in Australia. And there's probably a whole lot of factors going on there. Send rise in sedentarism, screen behaviours, discretionary food intake, a, a change in the way you ate, increased stress. That's really important, that living with constant stress. And probably in a lot of young people, that disturbs sleep-wake cycle. We're all contributing to this. And, um, you know, I think we can all realise that because we've all just been through the COVID-19 lockdown. Um, and we can see how that was a very unhealthful, in, well, it's really good to avoid getting COVID-19, not so good to um, develop risk for non-communicable diseases at the same time. You work with children affected by obesity and type 2 diabetes. This is for you, Louise. I'll start. What do you think are some of the most important healthcare actions that are needed to help these young people and their families? 
probably the very first is to stop blaming people and saying that they are the problem. And um, as a healthcare professional, to get alongside and work with them as a member of the community to actually be a friend and to help and support people. I think um, obesity, a high BMI, is a health issue that's obvious to other people. And people living with obesity experience enormous amount of stigma. So do people with, some people with type 2 diabetes. And that stigma that people experience, um, so for kids it can be in the school, from their school teachers, from their peers, from their family, from the healthcare professionals, from the general public. And that does nothing to help. It actually makes it harder for people to seek help. It makes it harder for treatments to work. It makes people, um, makes obesity worse. Um, and so one of the things that we're really keen is to ensure that people are not stigmatised, that they are, it is recognised that um, these are obesity and type 2 diabetes are significant um, disease processes that really create significant health issues and that it's not the fault of the individual. So I think that helps you then be able to work alongside. Now, um, if I'm talking to family members um, and we're talking about things such as obesity, I'd say as a family, get alongside this young person, realise that you need a whole of family approach to healthy lifestyle to start with. Look at the whole family needs to be part of the solution here. I know that's saying the end of, yeah, so when you have somebody who has obesity, yes, the family needs to be there to support you. You need to be able to access good health care. So talk to, if you have in a system that has, if you've got a general practitioner, if you've got a family doctor, if there's someone that you can speak to and get the support that you might need. In some countries, that may be much more available than in others, unfortunately. Um, there's a whole, whole other, you know, depending on the severity of obesity you have, then you may need far more sophisticated forms of treatment. And I'd encourage you to speak to doctors about that. Now, if you wanted me to then talk about how do we as a health system try to deal with um, prevention of obesity, then that's a big, big question. It goes beyond the health system. It goes to the way in which we organise our transport systems, our food systems, um, a whole range of approaches that influence um, how easy it is to be to live an active lifestyle and to make healthy food choices. I go back to the healthcare system. The major problem I think is that we have very few um, services in most countries have very few services to treat obesity in young people. And often they wait until they get type 2 diabetes in order to start some form of treatment. And even then they may not be actively managing the excess body weight as part of that treatment. Oh, okay. Thank you. Mike? Yeah, I mean, Louise has put a finger on some very important points there. I think to pick up on your own point, Phyllis, uh, was the issue about um, involving patients and families in making decisions and making policy decisions here. And we listened, uh, perhaps now it's three years ago, to the the most recent ADA pronouncement on how to manage type 2 diabetes and all the drugs, great tables full of drugs, uh, that entire process, it was a joint European-American um, exercise to produce new guidelines, had no 
involvement of patients or public, as far as I could tell. I asked a question at this presentation, was there public and patient involvement? No, there wasn't. Um, perhaps they've changed that now, but the, 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 the input of people with diabetes is hugely important. Now, you're speaking to Louise and myself. We are old-fashioned physicians, and we learned medicine in the days when there was an art of medicine as well as a science. The science is very important, but the art of medicine really involves getting on side with the patient. And we, we aren't frightened of using the word patient, but we recognize them as people, as members of families, of people with jobs, with occupations, with all sorts of normal problems that life throws at them. And they can become much like friends. Certainly one of my, some of my patients have become really very good friends. And that, that's, it's, it's kind of nice. But it's making the point that, you know, we have in the health service tended to say, here's a disease, here's the solution. Here, and very often, here's just the drug. And, and the idea that you can give a drug to get rid of a disease uh, was, is really quite new. I mean, it didn't really happen until the antibiotics arrived around about the middle of the last century. Before that time, there was no drug that cured a disease. You could modulate some of the symptoms. That was all that we could do. And then the idea that you could throw money at drug companies and that they would then produce enough drugs, we'd cure everything. I was taught by a professor of, of um, pharmacology who said, give enough money to the drug industry and we will have a drug for everything. Now, that was wrong. That was just wrong. It was wrong. <laughs> In, in science, because patently we can't have a drug that will deal with obesity or type 2 diabetes, but it's also wrong in the sense that we can't take that away from the people who are at the other end of this. So, um, you know, the blame issue, which, which Louise has, has raised here, is hugely important. A lot of people who are overweight or gaining weight, they know what's happening. They can see what's happening. They don't want it, but it's happening, and they feel that they're being um, judged because they're getting weight, because other people who are not overweight then would look down their nose at them and, and think, well, why aren't you behaving and leading your life like me? I'm a clever person. I haven't gained weight. That is a, an attitude which is very prevalent across the entire medical profession, not just medical, but all health services and indeed in the general public. Um, and I think we have to then face up to this issue that although there is always going to be a responsibility of the individual, the patient, to, to deal with this problem. We can't simply blame them. It isn't a blaming issue. Um, and it's a very it's a subtle thing here. You, uh, people who gain weight, I, I, I can't gain weight. I'm, I, I could try as hard as I like and, and I can't. I'm driven to run up mountains and dash about, I suppose. And I, I'm just one of those people who doesn't gain weight. And I'm pretty unusual in that regard. But um, people who tend to gain weight, it's because all that genetics and metabolism is, com is conspiring to make us eat a little bit more when there is a little bit more, uh, sit down a little bit more when there is time to sit down more. That's perfectly normal. That's not a thing we should blame people for. But what lies underneath it is a genetic predisposition to, to personally to put on the weight and secondly to be in the unlucky lot who will get the metabolic diseases, the diabetes. Turn it around and say, how are we going to resolve this? Well, we're not going to change your genetics or your metabolism, except in small ways. But there will always be a responsibility. We, we, you know, the only countries which have turned around um, obesity, the process of weight gain and type 2 diabetes has really been Cuba during terrible times of, of deprivation. And we certainly saw in war times when numbers of people with diabetes were, fell down, perhaps that's because less were being diagnosed, but actually people didn't gain weight and were um, stressed in other ways. So that was the time, the only time when we've seen diabetes reduced. We haven't seen any country which has seen a, a dip 
um, in a real way in the numbers of type 2 diabetes or indeed of obesity yet. Um, and I think we have to then say, well, the, the success of the food industry, social marketing, persuading us to eat things which our grandparents never considered eating at times of day when our grandparents never considered eating or drinking, that, that is a huge success of social marketing. It's made a lot of profits for a lot of wealthy people. And the only way we're going to deal with that now, because it's so embedded in our politics and our culture, is by equipping, helping people to negotiate this obesogenic environment. Um, love, love it. I mean, we, we would love to be able to turn it around and to um, just to say, right, don't eat these things. But that's not going to happen. Um, and we wouldn't, we're not going to see a world where suddenly the, the fast foods that are superfluous to our needs are going to disappear because, unfortunately, we have a, a free market where profits are still able to be made by selling more. So I think we've got a, uh, we've got a dif difference here between blame and responsibility. And the, one of the things which old-fashioned doctors like Louise and I do is try to help people take that responsibility, understand it, and realize they're not being blamed, but they're being supported. Can, could I just come here at, in at the yeah. moment and just say, um, I, I just expand a bit further on what uh, Mike has said. I've heard it basically described as a physiological or a normal response to a pathological environment. So, our, so um, you are responding as your genes, as your biology says, but the world has become far more pathological, in inverted commas, than it was some decades ago. And our biology that actually says it's important to store body fat and that it's important to um, ensure that you're not without fat stores in, t in, in case there's going to be a time of famine, um, run into problems when all of a sudden there is no famine and we don't have to be very physically active and the and the poor quality high calorie food just comes to us. Um, now, one of the issues there is when you're in a treatment mode. So when Mike and I are as physicians seeing patients in hospitals, then we need to work alongside the patients. In my case, the patients and their families to help them navigate this world. Part of my job, <laughs> it, when I put on my public health physician hat, is to advocate for actually seeing if we can change aspects of our environment as well. And that's a much, much more challenging task. And Mike has highlighted that because um, it's not been incredibly successful as yet. There may be some strategies, for example, the, um, trying to tackle the rampant marketing of unhealthy foods and beverages to children and young people is something that many families, many parents uh, and in fact many people in a lot of communities would be willing to stomach they'd be actually saying yes it's important to get that third parent out of the household the one called social media marketers and so on some of the other changes are more challenging though can i can i pick up on that as well and this is really yeah. interesting louise in the the document that you mentioned for said there is quite a lot in fact in the who document as well um, about trying to tackle marketing the marketing of fast foods, of, of added value foods, that means added value for whoever is selling them, not for whoever's buying them, um, and especially to children. Um, th there is a sort of a basic bit of mathematics which has gone missing here, and that is that if food is being produced by someone, 
it's going to be consumed. There is a little bit of wastage, of course, there always is, but most of the food being produced is going to be consumed. And people are very clever. The industry is very clever at maximizing its profits. So we had, when I was a director of the Health Education Board for Scotland for eight years, and we did our best to try to improve things. One of the things we discovered was that some um, slightly unscrupulous um, food manufacturers were going to other countries to buy the waste food that people wouldn't eat uh, and to turn it, and this was fat produced in Belgium and France that people in Belgium and France wouldn't eat because it's just fat off animals. And they would then put that into very, very cheap uh, sausages and, and pies and sell to people in Scotland. Now, we publicized that and, and I think it came to an end, although you can never be quite sure. But that illustrates something which is much broader. And um, there are communities, especially poor communities, who are being given food which is extremely poor quality because it's very, very cheap, because it's the stuff that other people won't eat. And, you know, we've, we have examples, for example, in the Aboriginal people in, in Australia who, who are eating essentially corned beef in large amounts in Tampa, which are foods which most of us wouldn't dream of eating. It's very cheap. The um, Maori people in, in, and Pacific people in, this, in South um, Auckland and New Zealand are similarly being given foods which people wouldn't eat. And I think if you look to some of the smaller island states, Louise will say more about this, uh, we find that poor countries, uh, particularly those who don't produce enough of their own food, are being given the high shelf life, low nutritional value foods that uh, the clever civilized countries uh, would throw away. Well, we're not throwing it away, we're selling it and making profits that way. I don't know if Louise wants to pick up on that. In, in the um, get in here and just say, um, since you're talking about the specific islands, um, the specific islands and other small island developing states, they have such a high, one of the highest obesity and type two diabetes rates, but they aren't well represented in policy discussions. What do we need to do to help change that? If you could add that to your discussion that you're about to say, Louise, that'd be great. Um, as I respond to this, I will just point out I'm a white um, Anglo-speaking woman from a high-income country and Mike is from a high-income country in Scotland. Um, so I just need to, you know, I can't speak on behalf of Pacific people, but I have some insights from speaking with Pacific, people in the Pacific and elsewhere. So first of all, we need to make it easier for people coming from countries with high prevalence rates of type 2 diabetes and obesity to be present at the table and to be part of making the solution. This goes back to what we were talking about before. Um, this needs to engage the people living with the with these issues. Um, right. Can I just give you just one little si apparently silly example? Um, WHO is based in Geneva and a lot of the UN work is based in New York and so when meetings are held they're always late at night for me in Sydney and if I lived in the Pacific it'd be another two or three hours afterwards always after midnight mm -hmm. um, and so it's really hard to even be present in the Zoom because it's always when you're asleep or very tired. I'll just give you that as one example of how it's easy to disenfranchise people. Um, from my um, speaking with people living in the Pacific, uh, sorry, I will say the, the term paradise lost has been coined, has 
in, in relation to the rise of type 2 diabetes and obesity in the Pacific as there have been these changes in traditional lifestyles with the uh, another term, coca colonization of those communities. The move away from traditional ways of living to highly, um, to these aspects of westernised lifestyles or certainly changes in food um, uh, food systems, ways of making, ways of earning a living, everything changed. And we can see this in many um, countries, not just small island developing states, but also in First Nations communities in other countries. Those peoples must be represented in any um, planning for the future um, if we're going to tackle this for the people who are most affected. Um, I think that's going to be the very first response. Now, um, I just also remind people too that in the Pacific, um, these are the these small island developing states are actually dealing with huge impacts of climate change with rising sea levels already impacting them. These have been um, after some period of time because of isolation free from COVID. They're also now dealing with COVID impacts. And certainly in a large part of the South Pacific, the impact of the, um, the volcanic eruption in Tonga in January and the tsunami and all the issues that followed that have also been very significant. So dealing on top of that with this chronic issue of type 2 diabetes and obesity is just very challenging when you've got all these other things that you're juggling. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for bringing that visual and the details. And while I've never been to the Pacific Islands, one thing that you said brought back to me memories of my childhood. <clears throat> so I grew up in an area that was very rural and it's now under urbanization. And one of the things is when I grew up, we had a huge feel with herbs. And our elders taught us like which tea to make and how to do it. And through the process of urbanization, they just bulldozed all those fields. No one ever asked us, is this your pharmacy? And so now their home's there and we have to go to the local pharmacy for medicine. Whereas in a child, I grew up drinking teas, you know. So having when you mentioned about having your own identity and, and the way in which you move throughout the world, succumb to Coca-Cola-nization, that's a new word for me. Um, I can identify with that. Uh, do you have something to add, Michael, about what's happening in the, in the Pacific Islands? Well, I'm, I'm even further away from the Pacific Islands than Louise, but there's a sort of um, one aspect is that the the, there is a tendency for small island communities to uh, rely on imported foods. And that puts them in the same boat as uh, Middle Eastern Gulf states, which don't produce, most of their food is not produced locally. Therefore, they tend to rely on the imported foods, long shelf life, the, the high keeping foods, um, and the added value foods, because if, if somebody's going to sell foods to to anyone, but particularly to, to relatively wealthy Middle Eastern countries, they're going to sell foods which are high uh, in profits, so they're low, to, low cost to make, and they can be sold all over the world, but they'll get their profits. Um, and there is, there is this issue that um, these are 
probably island communities which didn't support such large populations before. I don't know about that, if that's exactly true, but I suspect that the population levels have risen partly through better medicine and better survival of, of children um, to a point where they require more food than can be produced locally. Um, and that, that's an issue for food supplies. And it comes back to this, this business that if we're going to make food for populations, we should put the biology at the top of the list, not the profit motive. And we should start to produce foods with the right balance of nutrients. And that goes into manufacturing as well. We can make many foods with very poor balance of nutrients, but we can make them with better ones. We spent in Glasgow a lot of time creating a pizza, which is nutritionally perfect. It's the pizza which, um, with my tongue in my cheek, I, I did actually call NASA and say, we could actually feed your astronauts pizza three times a day, go to Mars and back, and they'll be in perfect health because we've put into this pizza exactly what you know is required for perfect health. We called it Eat Balanced. And, and it's still there. It's being used, but it's not the normal pizza. The normal pizza is high in fat because it keeps longer, um, and it's, it's cheaper to make that way because there's a lot of excess fat being produced by the farming industry, and they don't know what to do with it except put it into pizza, put it into sausages, and sell it to more people. So we've got a sort of issue about food supply equaling food consumption. And if we go back in strategy, it's all very well educating people about food choice. This is not really about food choice, because in many countries, people don't have a choice. They're eating what is, what is provided. And if what is provided is high in sugar, high in fat, high in salt, that's what they're going to get. And it goes back to the food supply. And it's, it sounds pretty radical. But I think if we really want to tackle a global problem, we have to tackle it at a global level by somehow manipulating food production. That doesn't happen overnight. Nobody would suggest you know, doing something drastic and putting half the farmers in the world out of business. No, it has to be done slowly. It's come in. This has taken perhaps 50 years to develop the, the epidemic of type 2 diabetes and obesity. And it's going to take us a long time if we ever uh, actually get on top of it at a, at a grassroots level and change the food supply. Well, I just want to say, Mike, I'm going to be looking for that pizza because I love pizza. <laughs> you, so. you can still find it. It's still available in Scotland. And, and quite a lot of school children benefit from it because their parents uh, have insisted that that's what the school should provide. So well done then. Okay. Um, at the recent World Health Assembly, new targets and recommendations were agreed for diabetes and obesity to be achieved by 2030. How can these help achieve the actions needed globally? Uh, let's start with you, Louise. It's a challenging task. I think we've spent the last um, period of time just highlighting some of the big challenges we've had, how we've seen obesity and type 2 diabetes rise in prevalence didn't happen overnight. These are a consequence of a whole lot of changes in our food system, but also I would say also in aspects of our food, our transport, urban design, um, and some aspects of colonisation and westernisation that have just taken several decades. So undoing those is actually challenging. Also, some of the things that I think are potentially helpful, are part of a solution, um, are politically quite challenging. So um, regulating food marketing directed towards children and young people, I think that's part of what could be looked at. Um, 
food, big food and marketers don't like that approach. And so governments have to be strong in dealing with that. Several countries around the world have looked at some form of um, sugar tax, soda tax um, uh, on soft drinks, those sorts of things. Um, and that may be part of this, trying to shift consumption away from sugary drinks towards water or other beverages that may actually have a whole range of healthful nutrients in it. My own country of Australia, that's a no-go territory at the moment because we're a sugar exporting country. It would be very politically challenging to try to introduce that as an example. There are other things about how can we as a community, as a country, um, look at provision of healthful foods towards communities that find it really difficult to actually purchase or, or have them supplied. Mike's talk, talked about um, communities, you know, poor communities um, that can't afford fruit and vegetables, the lean meats, the, the eggs, the short shelf life foods that are generally far more healthful. And communities may need to look at how can we get fruit and vegetables to places that care for um, children and young people in socially disadvantaged areas or in countries like mine or other equivalent ones to remote and regional areas or places where there are people living where it is more difficult. There are bigger issues about how do you turn around your food production system so that it's you do have healthier food options closer to where communities live. And you, But all of that's challenging. On another level, we're also talking about how can we deal with um, promoting uh, more active transport, looking, re-looking at urban design to promote the ability for people to walk around, kids to be able to play, not just the mics of the world to be able to run, but lots of people to be able to run easily or to walk rapidly. Um, and right. all, all of those are part of the solution. And there are some other benefits from looking at some of those. So if we want to tackle climate change, if we want to tackle urban car congestion, then some of those approaches about promoting physical activity will be good. Uh, some of those approaches will be also good for in, improving physical activity, as an example. Mike will no doubt have a whole range of other things mm -hmm. to say. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 Louise knows this very well, but I tend to take the radical approach and I think we have to take the bull by the horns in, in many areas here. We have to be much more open about the fact that, uh, that, as mentioned in our report, there are countries where there simply is not yet insulin to treat children with diabetes. They die. And those are countries close to us. I've done a lot of work in, in Nepal and outside the major cities, there is no insulin. There's no education allowing people to use insulin. Children get type 1 diabetes, they will die just like that. And that's, that's a scandal. We have lots of insulin. It's, it's easily available. Education is required, but that should, should not be happening now. We, um, I, I looked at the WHO, in fact, I went through it again this morning, and I searched the WHO document 2022 to see whether it mentions the word remission of type 2 diabetes. Now, everybody involved in diabetes now has heard about the research that we've been doing, not just us, but also in, in other countries, which have shown categorically that type 2 diabetes can be uh, reversed 
people with type 2 diabetes can uh, lose enough weight that they're no longer diabetic, do not require medication. And if you don't have diabetes, you can't get the complications of diabetes. Now, this is new research. It's been quite radical. But that surely is a game changer. That should say to people, this is um, not a disease which is permanent. We were taught, Louise and I were taught that this is a permanent disease. You need to take drugs forever. That is not true. That is simply not true. And we maybe can't uh, get remissions lifelong, but if people don't gain weight, they won't get diabetes. If they lose enough weight, they can get rid of their diabetes. That should be a game changer, and it's beginning to be. We also have an idea, and this is sort of coming together of, of um, political thinking as well, which says, who is most likely to suffer from this epidemic? And the people who currently have diabetes are guaranteed to be suffering. What about our children, young people now who've not yet got it? Young people are quite good at making their voices heard. I was young once, and I certainly made my voice heard. <laughs> and my children do the same, and my grandchildren do the same when they're, when they're not bound. Um, young people can take on causes. Young people can see their parents, their grandparents, developing obesity and diabetes. And young people are, have the best opportunity to knit together forces for a global phenomenon using information technology, using their mobile phones. And the idea that we could um, assist, support young people into a global movement to try to oppose the coca colonization of countries that really shouldn't be coca colonized and to reverse the coca colonization of some of our so-called so civilized countries, I think is, is possible. We know we have huge phenomena like, I mean, Greta Thunberg has actually made a lot of noise, has changed political thinking about climate change, has activated millions of young people around the world for climate change. And I think it's a really very similar and related issue that if we can move towards a more short shelf life food, vegetable-based food consumption, we will see less obesity, we will see less diabetes. And I think that would have a greater impact than more education. We've done education, it didn't really work. So I'll leave that idea with you for the future. Oh, wow. I am just so full from this conversation, I have to say. <laughs> um, earlier, when you talked about people who are living with obesity, they know when their BMI increases. It reminded me of this time when I started gaining weight around puberty. And like all of these older people would comment like, you're gaining weight, you're getting fatter, and these kinds of things that just hurt my feelings emotionally. And I do want to say I enjoy reading about the emotional burden of obesity in the document. Again, I just thought that was so human centric because that's also something that's usually missed. But when you said that, Michael, I remember I came up with this comment to say to this older woman who I saw all the time and she every time I saw her, she said something about my weight. And so the next time I said to her, listen, I buy my own clothes. So I know when I gain weight, you just tell me when I get ugly. <laughs> and that was just my way of shutting her up because I was so sick and tired of it. And she was like, oh, okay, well, you are ugly. You're pretty. And I was like, then thank you. Like, that's it. That's all you need to say to me. Um, but the stigma of living with obesity and diabetes is just overbearing a lot of times. And 
I just want to, again, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. We spent a lot of time talking about what hasn't worked in prevention, but what might work or what solutions are needed to help make progress achieved by the WHO's 2030 goal. Uh, Michael? Yeah, well, we've already touched on this. I, I think education is really important. We have to have education, but alone education has not worked and will never work. Um, because the opposing you know, industry is a very big profit-motivated global industry, uh, which is, has used social marketing so effectively to overcome education. And we can see that in beautifully in the long-term United States data, which shows that obesity, um, if you measure it as a BMI over 30, has increased across the entire population. It's increased less at, at a lower level for people with, with higher levels of schooling, but at the same rate. So whether you went to, to university or you left school with no qualifications, the, the rise in obesity across the United States has been exactly the same. So shows, social marketing operates and cuts through education. Education is good, it's valuable, but it will not beat social marketing. So we know that, and we mustn't keep throwing more money at attempts to educate people out of obesity. And that's why I think having um, my, my solution, and we published this in um, Nature Endocrinology, Reviews in Endocrinology, was that we should activate and support a new generation of angry young people to take on that food industry and say, this is wrong. We will not any longer uh, go along with this. We're not going to buy these products and we're going to tell our friends across the world not to do this and we're going to make a lot of noise about it. And it reminds me of my daughters when they were a little bit younger than they are now. They were caught in the local city of Dundee going around, um, am I allowed to mention a food chain of, uh, called McDonald's anyway? And they went to the McDonald's outlets these naughty little girls and started knocking on the walls and then they wait they knocked on the walls outside until the staff came out and said what are you doing and they said we're just showing you that your building's made of cardboard just like your food and these were school children who are not like to do this they thought it was funny clever but i think this kind of attitude uh, angry young people who are prepared to take on big industry uh, might actually be more effective than a lot of committees writing more reports about more education that hasn't worked. <laughs> okay, so angry young people from Michael, Louise. I love that image of those angry young people going to the Scottish restaurant. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. Um, I was going to say, I'm a paediatrician, I actually, I was going to say, as usual, um, we need to invest in children and young people and pregnant women um, because I think being able to invest in that early life period is really important. Now, if we make things good for pregnant women or women about to become pregnant and children and young people, then we make the world good for all of us. Um, and that it means that we're not expecting people to have to be forever uh, responsible for everything that happens. Uh, we've allowed this world to develop that makes it really hard for people to make healthy choices around eating and physical activity, and that's stressing people out. That's the world that we live in. And it doesn't work if we keep saying now you've got to, in that world, you've got to eat better, you've got to be more physically active and just chill out and don't be stressed, and then you'll avoid the obesity and type 2 diabetes. That seems really silly. Um, 
I, I am heartened by the fact that there is this increasing recognition that this is a complex system and that no one thing will make a difference. I love the fact that there are young people and older people who are actually you know, mad as hell and they're not going to put up with it anymore. And uh, what we want to do is to see really concerted action. This um, World Health Assembly resolution is part of that, but not only part of that. I'm heartened too by the fact that we that there are things such as um, you know, evidence of diabetes remission, not just in adults, which Mike has shown, but even our group has actually shown that there can be some remission of type 2 diabetes in some young people if they're able, supported to actually lose weight. So we're seeing some changes in treatment that may actually turn things around. But it's still a big thing. We're talking about, you know, I want those young people to, in, you know, obesity can't be and type 2 diabetes tackled on its own. This is related to things such as climate change, um, poverty, food insecurity and more. And we need to join up these. We're, we're all responding physiologically to a world that has changed over the last few decades and we need to um, work together to make a difference. And I'd love to see the voices of children and young people. And guess what I was talking about before? The people who are most affected, the people from countries where it's most significantly a problem, their voices need to be heard as well. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. I have just left today's discussion with so much knowledge, so many things to think about, while I'm venturing into older, I will consider myself a part of the angry young people. So I do um, like that. I want to encourage all of our listeners to download this document. Download the International Diabetes Federation's and World Obesity Federation's policy brief on obesity and type two diabetes, a joint approach to halt the rise. The description will be, the, the link will be in the description. I've read it, it's easy to read. Make sure you have your pen or your highlighter to make marginal comments. If you're living with diabetes and obesity, if you're living with type two diabetes and obesity, you will feel seen and heard and you walk away with information to share with others, maybe even your healthcare providers. I would like to thank Louise and Mike one more time for making this talk today just fabulous. Can you please tell us, we'll start with you, Louise, where can we find you on social media? And then Mike, where can we find you on social media? You can find me not on social media because I've been attacked uh, really oh. vehemently in the past. So, but you can find my colleagues on social media, but you can find me, if you, as long as you know how to spell my surname, B-A-U-R, then you can easily find me on my website. Okay, and I'm exactly the, I'm exactly the same, uh, Phyllis. I, I have um, similarly been attacked for telling the truth on social media, and I think the days of Twitter being a, a, a useful thing are, are gradually going over. Uh, it was made a mockery of by certain Americans, and I think we've had enough of it. So I also have um, a, a listing on the University of Glasgow website. My email address is sitting there. Nearly every journalist in certainly Britain knows my telephone number, 
um, and it's not very secret, but the best way to get in touch is by email through the website University of Glasgow, and you can search my name, Mike Lean, which has also got four letters. We have a lot of four-letter words around here, L-E-A-N, that's, that's me. Okay, thank you very much. So you can find them on social media, but you can find them at their website and via email. I look forward to welcoming you soon to a brand new episode of Detox. See you next time. Thank you again.